Please find your place again in the book of Acts if you have taken your finger off that part of the scripture or perhaps have closed your Bible. Acts 16 will be the text for today's message. Before I begin teaching from this passage of scripture, what I'd like to remind you of is something that's going to happen next week. In observance of Holy Week, our elders and pastors are preparing to give a 30-minute teaching on one of the words of Christ from the church. You can tune in any day after 7 a.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, and you'll be able to be taught the word of the Lord. It'll help us to prepare for celebrating Resurrection Day the following Sunday. So be in prayer for them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, we ask you that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Holy Spirit, we know that unless you teach us, this exercise will be one that is an exercise of futility. It will make no difference. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to do what you have promised us you would do. And that is to guide us into all truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul also writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, imitate me as I imitate you. It's very clear that the Apostle Paul was not ashamed of Jesus in his words, in the adulterous and sinful generation in which Paul lived. And so we, in imitation of Jesus Christ and in imitation of Paul as he imitates Christ, we too should not be ashamed of his words. This gospel is incredibly powerful. It has the power to change people. Prior to World War II, as we knew it as Americans, Korea had come under the dominance of Japan. There was a dear Christian woman by the name of An Kim who was praying one morning, as she often did. She was a woman who spent long periods of time fellowshipping with Christ on a daily basis. She had memorized great sections of Scripture. And the Lord spoke to her heart. And it was something she had not expected. He told her, I want you to go to Japan, and I want you to go to the Congress of Japan and read a word of judgment upon them and upon the nation of Japan. She was shocked by that, but she did what the Lord told her to do. She bought a one-way ticket, expecting that she would not leave Japan alive. Miraculously, she gained access to the gallery there where the Congress of Japan met. When there was a lull in the discussion, she stood unrolled a scroll which she had the message written on and began with these words. Leaders of Japan, unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, you will be judged. 
You can imagine the dumbfoundedness that pervaded that general situation. She continued and read every word of what she sensed the Lord wanted her to say to Japan. She re-rolled her scroll, walked out. No one said anything. But when the people who were in charge of the area gathered their wits about them, they took her into captivity and did not execute her as she thought they would. She was sent back to her homeland of Korea, and there she was imprisoned in a Japanese concentration camp. She was confined in a 250-square-foot cell with 20 other women, no facilities whatsoever, fed very meagerly. So poorly was she fed, just a handful of rice per day, that she became malnourished. Her hair began to fall out. She became blind because of her malnourishment. Prior to that, however, during the early days of her captivity, she was invited to come into the commandant's office, which was very spacious. It did not have the putrid odors of the cell which she inhabited. And there was beautiful food made available to her, lay out for her. And this is what she was told by the commandant. If you will bow the knee and worship at this Shinto shrine in this room, denouncing what you said to the leaders of Japan, because we know it was that religion, Christianity, that led you to do so, then you'll be set free today. She didn't even have to think about a response. She said, I cannot do that. She was returned to her cell. Several times thereafter, the same scenario was repeated. And each time, she gave the same answer. As her body weakened and her heart began to be heavier, she did not in any way waver in her resolve of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, she began to conduct Bible studies in that cell with those women. The Lord used her as she preached the gospel to her fellow inmates. The Lord used her to lead several of those women to Jesus. And not only those women, but also several of the guards came to know Jesus Christ. There was a revival which broke out not only in her cell, but throughout that entire prison camp because of her commitment to Jesus and her being unashamed of preaching the gospel. One day, she was called yet another time into the commandant's office. When she arrived there, she was surprised to hear what he had to say. He said, On Kim, you do not even have to confess Shintoism in this room before me today. If you will simply promise that you will, once you're released from this place of captivity then you will be a free woman. She said, I cannot do that. He said, all you have to do is promise. And she said, for a Christian, to promise is the same as doing it. And once more, she walked out. Her captors gave up on trying to persuade her, and a date for her execution was scheduled. Remember, she was blind now. But 
even though her body was wasting her way, her inner person was being renewed day by day as she meditated on the Word of God. One of the guards whom she had introduced to Jesus gave word to her that her day was ending in that prison camp. The next day, she was to be executed. But he, with some of the other guards who had become Christians, had found a way for escape for her. And then she said, Look at me. I cannot see. Look at my emaciated body. If tomorrow is the day of my execution, it will be the day that I will see Jesus. And it will be my homecoming. I will not only be with Him, but with many of my loved ones who have preceded me in death. And so she lay her head down on the cold stone floor of that prison. She fell asleep. She was awakened by singing. It seemed like angels singing. Her assumption was that she had died in her sleep before being executed. And she relished in what she heard. It seemed, of course, like angels to her. And then she began to listen a little more carefully. And they were singing, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Lift high the royal diadem and crown him king of all. She knew she was in heaven then until that same prison guard came and said to her, On, Japan surrendered yesterday. We are free. Amazingly, she recovered. Her hair grew back. Her sight was restored. And she lived to tell the story and to preach the gospel. She's an example of the power of the gospel to change people. And as we saw last week, if you were with us from John chapter 20, the truth sets us free from the dread of death. She was not afraid of dying. Why? Because she was trusting in Jesus who promised that if she would believe in Him, she had eternal life. And she was a living example of that. Also, she knew how to rejoice. This is another thing that happens when we receive Christ as our Lord. Rejoice in even the worst of circumstances in that awful place in that concentration camp. And then she was sent as a free person from Korea to Japan to share the gospel. The Lord gives us that same calling as it relates to the gospel. This passage of Scripture, which we're considering today from Acts chapter 16, talks about the messengers of the gospel. We would be included in this, but we can learn from these individuals who were the messengers. Well, let's look at verses 11 through 13. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. Notice the way that Luke writes. He talks about we which raises the question, who were they? Well, we know from this passage of Scripture the identity of two of those people, Paul, but also Silas, who 
suffered the same fate Paul did for preaching the gospel. But there were two other people who were present with them. We know Timothy was with them, Paul's son in the faith. But in addition to that, we know that Luke was with them. He had been with them ever since they came into this region of Europe. This is the first penetration of the gospel, as far as we know, into the continent of Europe when they had come to Philippi, which is in modern-day Macedonia, north of Greece. These were the messengers, people whom God had called out. We'll get back to them in just a moment. But let us look now at the method that the Lord would have us to employ when it comes to sharing the gospel. He has sent us, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So let's look at the method here, beginning with verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This woman, Lydia, was an incredible person. She was entrepreneurial. She was a person whose husband is not mentioned. It's possible, if not probable, that she was a single person. She came from another region to Philippi because she sensed that would be a good place to carry on business. She's described as a worshiper of God. We're not altogether sure whether she was a Jewess or possibly a proselyte, someone who was a Gentile, who had been introduced to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she had cast her lot with the Jewish people. But nevertheless, she was a seeker after God. And as we see, as these men taught, she listened. Here we see the first of three individuals who are mentioned in this text of Scripture. Lydia, a woman, a strong woman, an independent woman, yet a woman who had learned the importance, the absolute necessity of depending on God for her livelihood, for her protection, all the things that are contained in the Old Testament as we describe it. She had learned to trust in the Lord. And she was listening. Notice what it says in verse 14. She was listening to Paul and Silas as they taught. And what happened was the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Isn't this interesting? God's Spirit, Jesus Himself, opened her heart and Jesus gained entrance into her heart as she responded to the things which are spoken. Isn't this a pattern of how we come to know the Lord? We hear the Word of God, and then God speaks to our hearts and we respond. Think about, if you know Christ, think about your day of salvation. Wasn't that true? You sensed He was speaking to you through the Word of God. You listened intently. Perhaps you're listening this morning and you're eager to hear. You've come with a heart to hear. Listen carefully to the things which the Lord says to you through this passage of Scripture. 
Luke goes on to talk about her in verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, what we don't see when we read this in English is that she was continuing, continuing to urge Jesus, excuse me, to in, urge Paul and his companions to come and make her house their headquarters. It's worth noting that the word which is translated urged here to describe the way in which she pled with them to come is the identical word that Luke uses in his gospel in the 24th chapter. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection? They were saddened by the fact that Jesus had been crucified and he was gone as far as they were concerned. And Jesus shows up. They didn't recognize Jesus, but he began to talk to them. And as he talked to them, as they were walking down the road, they were getting ready to finish their part of the journey and Jesus was ready to leave. They said, please come and stay with us. We want to hear more of what you have to say. And the same word that Luke uses here in Acts 16, 15, urged, is used there by Luke as he writes his gospel. Urging, urging. And she was a woman who was hospitable. And she was blessed as a result of that. Well, let's continue to read in verse 16 as we consider the method. The method is teaching the Word of God. We see that. This is the method. The method is sharing the gospel with people. But let me say this before I forget it. The people whom the Lord sent Paul and his companions to share the gospel with were unconventional people. Remember, when Paul and his friends came, they went to a place of prayer. There were not enough male Jews in that city of Philippi, to constitute a synagogue. There would have had to have been ten male Jews who were adults who formed a synagogue. And when they found the place of prayer, which was common in outposts like this, this is, remember, this is the first time that there had been a transition from what we would call Asia to Europe. And they knew that It was customary where Jews settled that if they did not have enough people to form a synagogue, they would gather by the river on the Sabbath. And they had found these women there, all women, no men. They taught them the word of God. If you look back at the last part of verse 13, Luke says, We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Probably they didn't just barge in and start talking about the Lord. They inquired about them. They built a relationship rather quickly with them. And they shared the Lord with them. It's phenomenal. They were listening to what was having to be said. There was a prayer which was prayed every day, not by every male head, Jewish head of a family of followers of the one true God, but most men did. Here's how the prayer went. I thank God that I'm not a woman or a slave or a Gentile. So this first person 
who responded to the gospel was a woman. Amazing. And that church, the first convert and the leading convert, I might add, was a woman. So it was unconventional, the approach that was taken in terms of the people. We'll see more about that, too, as we work our way through the passage. Look at 16. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. This slave girl probably was a Gentile. And we know she was demonized. The Scripture says she had a spirit of divination. Actually, what it says is a spirit of a python. A python. What is a python? It's a snake, right? And there was a cult that worshipped Apollo, and associated with Apollo was a snake. And it was thought that many times a python would be the conveyor of the message of the god Apollo and would speak. Does that sound familiar? In the garden, Satan came in the form of a serpent, and Satan spoke through the serpent to Adam and to Eve. And the result of that was that they fell from grace and lost their innocence and were expelled from the Garden of Eden. But here, Paul, he stops and he's had enough. You might wonder, why did he do it the first time? Well, the... To be honest with you, we really don't know. But let me give you a suggestion. Here's an idea that I think is worth considering. Perhaps, if not probably, he wanted to give that beginning church time to form a little bit, as long as he could, before they might be deluged and attacked by people because of the loss of income that would come to these people who own this girl. She's a slave girl. And they would lose their income by her fortune-telling being eradicated. That could have been part of the reason. But nevertheless, when it came time for Paul to cast out this demon, he simply commanded that demon in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it left just like, that, a good model for exercising demons, I might add. Now, let's go forward with verse 19 of Acts 16. But when our masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Now, heretofore, Paul and his companions had encountered difficulty. They had been assaulted. They had been persecuted. You may remember that the Apostle Paul 
had been left for dead, stoned, in the region of Asia Minor. But now they were outside that area where there was an influence of the Jewish people's religion. And now they were in this city of Philippi, which was a colony of Rome. Perhaps you have read before that that city was founded really by retired Roman soldiers. They were patriots to the max, the people who inhabited that. And so these merchants, seeing their livelihood slipping right out of their fingers, knew that the best way to get rid of these interlopers, these Jews who had come, was to say, look what they're doing. They are causing confusion, appealing to the patriotism of the Roman citizenry. Look at verse 22. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And the word translated beaten is not just a little love tap. I mean repeatedly beaten. Paul talks about how three times he was beaten to the point of death given the maximum number of lashes that the Roman government would permit. And this was one of those three times. And Silas was right there alongside of him, being beaten by the chief magistrates, the chief officers of the law there in Philippi. Verse 23 says, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I want to stop here for just a moment. We now see the people, do we not, who received the message. The individuals, there were others we know. Some of those other women who are unnamed undoubtedly had received the gospel. We're going to see some others who probably did receive the gospel as well. But what we do see here is how these men were indiscriminate in the groups with which they shared the gospel. An unexpected slave girl who was an annoyance to Paul. It really aggravated him. In fact, it infuriated him. But she, after having been exercised of the demon, was taught by the Lord the way of salvation. She became a member of the church there at Philippi also. And now we see another figure entering the picture. This man, we have no name for. We simply call him the Philippian jailer. He was a Gentile, remember? We don't know much more about him than he was a jailer. He possibly was a former Roman soldier himself. He had a big responsibility. He was in charge of that situation. And when... These men were brought, these two men, Paul and Silas, were brought to him for imprisonment. I'm sure he didn't treat them with kid gloves. He might have been annoyed if it were nighttime when they were brought there. He didn't have a lot of patience with them initially, perhaps. My grandfather was a sheriff of a county in my native Tennessee for more than one term, and He was a big man, six feet, four inches tall. My mother used to tell me stories of how he was very short on patience with some of the inmates there. 
and he would sort of rough them up. Police brutality, if you will. This guy probably didn't give them the best of treatment when he put them into the inner prison. He put them into the bowels of this prison. And it was not a place that would have been something that would have passed inspection today. It was probably filthy. And there they were in this prison, fastened in the stocks. Look at verse 25. (coughs) Excuse me. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Something happened to that man in that experience. God got his attention through the earthquake, of course. He knew what the rules were. If anyone escaped on his watch, it would mean his death. So he was frightened. He was going to do the thing that was honorable in a sense, but also very wise. He was about to commit suicide to take his own life. You might ask, why would that be wise? Well, because he would have suffered longer and more severely had he been punished for letting these prisoners go. Let's now look at the message of the gospel. This is the very heart of what we're considering here today. And this passage says in verse 30, And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. This is the gospel. There's this request. The request is very clear. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this request is mixed with understanding and misunderstanding about what is involved in becoming the recipient of the gospel's power in one's life. Let's begin with that which is accurate. Here is what we know. He says, what must I do to be saved? Where did he get the idea of his needing to be saved? Where did that come from? In verse 17, if you'll look at it again, The scripture says, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And this young lady, freed from the slave masters, freed from the ultimate slave master, Satan himself, she had come to know Jesus. And he had heard that story. That word spread rapidly. Throughout 
Philippi, undoubtedly. And he had, with curiosity, listened to what was said as that word reached him. She knew something about the way of salvation. It was not really she, it was the demon. You may remember there is more than one occasion when Jesus is ministering to people and there is a demon who shows up. And the demon says, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Demons know who Jesus is. But this young lady, after she had been delivered from that demon, she'd been taught by the Lord the way of salvation. Perhaps she'd already begun to become one of those messengers as Jesus had sent, was sent by the Father, so he had sent her. And she began to share her story. Maybe that has something to do with his understanding of what he must do to be saved. But also, Jesus had communicated to this man, I think, before he fell asleep that night, as he listened to Paul and Silas. Now understand, there's no telling how many prisoners who had undergone similar treatment like Paul and Silas had been incarcerated in his prison. But he had never heard anything like he heard that night from the bowels of that prison. He heard these two men singing. And look again at what the Scripture says about their singing in verse 25. About midnight, they couldn't go to sleep. Why couldn't they go to sleep? Well, they were just beaten to a bloody pulp, probably. There was no sponging off of the backs when they got into that hellhole of a prison. There was no application of oil to soothe the pain. There was no food for them. There was no water for them, perhaps. And here they were. And what were they doing? This jailer had heard men curse the gods, undoubtedly, and scream out at him as the one who had put them where they were. But here he heard something that was marvelous. This goes back to what we saw last week from John chapter 20. How when the truth sets us free, and we know what the truth is, it's God's Word, it's the Gospel, but it's the person, it's the message. Who is the message of the Gospel? It's not some sort of abstract theological construct. It is none other than the God-man Himself in the person. Jesus set us free that we might enjoy life regardless of the circumstance. Are you in a circumstance like these men found themselves in? It's possible there's someone in such a circumstance confined in some sort of prison. It's not a prison like the county jail here or prison like Huntsville, one of the various units there. But you're in a prison of some sort, a relational prison, a physical prison, a spiritual prison, financial prison. You're in a prison and you're hurting. Well, we see what happens when we know Jesus like Paul and Silas knew Jesus. And we have the same Jesus. We have Him. And we know Him. And what are we to do? We're to praise the Lord. We have the capacity to. Was this just something to get their minds off of their situation and their pain? Not at all. It was a spontaneous 
response to the presence of Christ with them in that situation. They worship the Lord with great joy. And no matter how bad it gets for us in this life, it is possible that we can worship Him in His presence. There is fullness of joy in His right hand, pleasures forevermore. Just like An Kim, as she worshiped the Lord in that putrid cell, these men did the same. They turned their cell into a cathedral of praise. And let me tell you, I am confident of this, that they sang psalms. They sang the message of who their God was. And the people heard it, including the jailer. He heard some of that. It would not surprise me if they had not sung the 22nd Psalm, which we read earlier, about the coming Messiah and His salvation for those who have trusted in Him. So the good news for us is we can be like Jesus. We can be like Paul, who imitated Christ, because that same Christ has come to live in us. He has come to embody Himself and use us to help other people get set free. I happen to believe that part of what led this man to ask this question about what must he do to be saved is because he'd heard the plan of salvation, the way of salvation, from this little slave girl. He'd heard it also as Paul and Silas sang. And I know you saw when you read with me just a moment ago the 25th verse that the prisoners were listening to them too. The gospel was coming to them in that situation undoubtedly as they sang of the person whom they knew as their Lord. But there's a part of this that shows misunderstanding. What must I do to be saved. This is something that is age old. Even before the days of Jesus, there was a man, his name was Protagoras. He was a Greek philosopher, lived in the 5th century B.C. And he made a statement which simply is translated with these English words. Man is the measure of all things. Those who have followed him in the realm of philosophy have said he is the father of humanism, man-centered living. We have many religions which are man-centered, do we not? Hinduism, with its repeated reincarnations, karma causing those things. We have to get rid of certain things, so Hinduistic teaching says, get rid of such things by being punished in this life and then we go to the next life and we finally shuck off moksha, which is that thing which binds us and we find ourselves reunited with the Godhead. Islam, Muslims cannot be sure of their salvation. They're hoping they can work their way into the good graces of Allah and ultimate kind of service to him is to die a martyr's death which will ensure that they go to be with Allah in paradise. But the Christian faith is completely different. We live in a world that's dominated by humanistic thinking. Many of you know the name Ted Turner. He was the founder of CNN, the founder of TBS. He owned the 
Atlanta Braves for a while. He owned the Atlanta Hawks for a while. At one time, until recently, he owned more land than any other person in the United States. Literally millions of acres of ranch land. You know him. He's 81 years old now, suffering from dementia. And this is what he said. He had a bad experience as a boy. He had a sister who died of illness as a teenager, and he pled with God to heal her. And when God did not heal her, he said, I'm done with you, God. He didn't know the one true God, or he would not have had that kind of response. Well, he said this in some speech he made. He said, get off your knees, roll up your sleeves, and do something. And what he meant was, you are your own captain. You are the master of your fate. Do something. That's humanistic thinking, but even in religious circles and even in Christian churches, there are people who say you have to do certain things to be saved. Jesus saves us, for sure, from so much. He saves us from sin. We know the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. He saves us from that. But He also saves us from guilt. How does He save us? He saved us by dying on the cross. We've already heard about this in our worship service today. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. E. Stanley Jones tells the story of witnessing to a government official who is high up in the government of India where Stanley Jones was a missionary. And this man met several times with Dr. Jones as Dr. Jones was seeking to share the gospel and answer the man's questions. The thing he could not get over, this man, was the whole issue of how could one man dying on a cross hundreds of years before be the one who could save me? Because he was so entrenched in Hinduistic thinking. It was so foreign to him. God was beginning to work in his life, and he confessed to Stanley Jones that he had lived a life of infidelity as it related to his marriage. And he was impressed to go to his wife and confess that to her. He came back and told Dr. Jones what happened. And this is what he told. He said, when I told my wife I prepared her for what I was about to say, and I told her. She began to weep, and she wept, and she wept, and she wept some more. She cried for hours. And finally, after she had finished her crying, she came in to me, and she said, When we married, I gave my life to you, and I will not let your infidelity keep me from loving you now. And then this man said, I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior because now I understand what love God has for me in that love was crucified by sin on the cross, eradicating my guilt. And I don't have to deal with that anymore. Somebody listening this morning has been struggling with guilt in your life.
some sin you've committed. Maybe because you've never received Christ, you're estranged from Him. And you've tried everything you can to cover that up, to escape that. You've used substances maybe to escape it. You've used escapes in the field of entertainment, amusement, whatever. Maybe even promiscuity like this man that I just spoke of. But the reality is that God showed His love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ was punished for our sins, every one of them, on our behalf in order that we might not grow guilty beyond that moment of receiving Christ. Well, let's look at our text again. The request, now the response. Verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved in your household. The word believe is what it says, have faith in. Have faith in. It's not intellectual assent. It's not that I believe that Jesus Christ was an historical figure, which I do, have no problem with that. I don't have any qualms with any of the doctrines about the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, His living a perfect life, His dying on the cross, paying for all my sins, His being raised from the dead. He's coming back. There are other doctrines. I can believe all the doctrines and still not really know Him because I haven't trusted Him. This is the idea. Have faith in God. Throw yourself completely upon the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. The Lord Jesus. That's important. The word Lord means that He has all the authority in the universe. Jesus Christ becomes our Master. We serve Him. We serve Him with gladness. He's not a harsh taskmaster. He's the kind of person we will never tire of serving and obeying. We have to trust Him and give Him everything. And then we shall be saved as a result of that. He goes on to say, and your household. Well, does this mean that if you get saved, everybody in your home is going to get saved too? Well, not necessarily. But it generally follows when the leader of a home, just like in Lydia, she got baptized after she received Christ. And what happened? Her whole household got baptized. She was the leader of that home. And just like this man was the leader, his family also heard the word. Look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He sat down. He explained the gospel. After he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. He may have said, what does that mean? And they took time to explain the gospel, taught the gospel. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. They believed. It was a revival of major proportions there in Philippi. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Wow. You see what happens? When a person receives Christ, their lives are changed. When this man had first met Paul and Silas, they were just two other guys who had broken the law and he was going to do his job to make sure that they didn't escape from the prison. That was it. But it all changed in a matter of hours, didn't it? How did it change? It's because of the gospel. That's how it changed. That's why it changed. 
His life was transformed. What do we see him doing? He's dressing their wounds. He's feeding them. He's taking care of them. Well, the news is when Jesus Christ comes in our lives, He does things through us that are good to get the attention of other people. And note that there's something different about us. Here we are in a time of great difficulty, a great stress, but we who know Christ, we can be like Paul and Silas in the prison, praising God, not being phony about it, but just really spontaneously praising and worship the Lord. And we will have the opportunity to do good to other people so that people will want to know why we have the hope that we have in the face of such difficult days. And the answer is very clear. It's because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, if there are those who are listening who have never received you, we pray that they would believe and trust you for eternal life. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.